Thanks for joining us at Faith Bible Chapel. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and brings you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service, find a small group, or simply find out more about the church, stop by our website at www.faith.church. Today we'll continue with the series on the book of Mark. And uh, as I came to this passage today, I have to be honest with you, I didn't really, I didn't share this with the, with the first service, um, but I'll share it with you. This passage today was actually very difficult for me. One of, one of the things the Lord's spoken to me about my role as a teacher of the Word of God is that uh, I'm to take the Word of God and I'm to teach what it says. I, I, I'm not to cherry pick what topics I want, but I'm to teach the text. And so today I'm going to be doing my best to teach this text today. Um, it, for some reason it was really difficult for me and I labored through it. And, and I pray that by God's grace you're able to receive the truth of God's word. It's going to be challenging. It's gonna, you're going to leave here with an understanding of, of hopefully yourself better, Jesus better. And you're going to be set on a pathway that, that God can grow all of us together. But today I titled today's message, Living on the Right Side of Faith. The reason why I said that is because in just a moment, you're going to see that there's actually a wrong side of beliefs. Faith is just believing in something. And so we're going to look at a passage where there was a group of people that believed the wrong thing about Jesus. And so we're going to look at two accounts of people. The first one, Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth, and uh, he, he doesn't have the greatest time. And, 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 you know, has anyone ever returned to your hometown? Maybe you live somewhere else and you return, and it's just a lot of fun. And you, you go to a, your, your, your hometown, and maybe some of you are like, man, I ran from that hometown. I'm never getting back. Some of you, maybe you like it. But I, I had the, um, the, just the, the privilege of returning home. A few weeks ago, and I went back to see my family, and, and uh, I got to officiate my, my niece's wedding, Sierra, and her new husband, Trace. And it was just really fun being with the family and going back to the place where I grew up. And I like going with my wife and my kids and driving the gravel roads and going around the corner that I learned to power slide. Not that any of you have ever done that. Um, learned to power slide, and I see the ditch that, that I put Dad's truck in, and then luckily I was, my friend came by, and he pulled me out before Dad ever knew. So, Dad, if you're watching, sorry, you know. So, you know, I, it's just those great memories, and I went into town, this little town called Golconda, and I drove the main street, and there's one four-way stop, and then you head towards the Ohio River, you drive up on the levee, you look at the levee, you see Kentucky on the other side, you drive down the levee, you turn around, you come back, and then you come back to the four-way stop, and then you do it all over again. That's all we got. And I did that, and I loved it, and it's, it's great, and, and just, just eating the great food, the familiar smells, and, and just the familiar fields that, that I look at. But what I love the most is when I come back is that my family is excited to see me. That's kind of a big deal. And they welcome me home, and it's like a celebration. Hey, we're all back together again. This is fun, and let's eat some more food, and mom, fry some more stuff because that's what I love, you know. And so it's just great. It's a great time. But Jesus actually today returns to his hometown, but he isn't, he isn't really received the way that many of us would receive in our hometown. And this is where I want us to pick up today, that Jesus goes home, and now this is the second recorded time that he's returned to his town in Nazareth, and he visits, and he's there to say, hey, family, but what's interesting is that Though he went the, fir the first time, the first time didn't turn out real well, but at first it started off well, he started preaching, and then he wanted to murder him. How many know that's a bad trip home, right? <laughs> they return home, they're like, listen, you haven't been here for a while, I thought I liked you, but now I want to kill you. Okay, I'm out of here, see ya, like I'm gone. 
But this time Jesus returns to Nazareth and he's bringing with him his 12 disciples. And I have to think that Jesus is using this as a learning season, a learning time for his disciples. And we're, and we're looking at some, some interactions with Jesus as he, as he, as he begins to, to minister among his town. And we're going to look at two types of faith that Jesus was amazed by. And allow the scriptures to guide us and to challenge us and to move us forward. So let's jump in. Jesus is returned to his hometown. And let's see what happens when he returns. Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there. He had just finished a miracle. And he went to his hometown. Accompanied by his disciples, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Everybody say amazed. And this, this is the questions. They start asking questions. First, like, wow, this dude's amazing. Where did this man get these things? Like, in other words, listen, where did he get these groceries? This guy, he knows what he's doing. He's got some power to him. They ask, they, wait a minute, and they ask another question. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? So they're amazed by his wisdom, by his power. And then all of a sudden something switches in their mind and they say, what, what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Interesting, they were amazed by him. But then when they started looking at the natural things of his life, then they were offended by him. Very interesting. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town. Among his relatives and among his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed. Everybody say amazed. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He wasn't amazed at their faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And Jesus went around teaching from village to village. And when you look at this, we see how Jesus was treated and he was viewed by the people that knew him really the best. And I want to turn this passage around today and ask the question to us, how do we view and see Jesus? Just like these people, they were amazed at first, and then all of a sudden they started thinking about some things. They wait a minute, no, actually, I'm good. They were offended by him. And I want to ask us the question, how do you view Jesus? Do you view him like these people, or do you view him a different way? Because we come up with definitions about Jesus based off of our experience. We run the natural questions like they did. Well, I, yeah, but wait a minute. This is Jesus the carpenter. This is Jesus this. And I, I don't, I, no, wait a minute. Hang on. I don't know. This is, this is the Jesus my, my mother served. So I don't know how that applies to me. Or my grandpa loves Jesus. Or my dad, you know, likes Jesus. But, but, I, but maybe it's different because he liked him. And maybe I don't, I, I don't know. So our views of Jesus begin to shift, or even the truth about Jesus, we don't fully understand it completely, so we come down with the wrong conclusions about this man, Jesus. And we don't define Jesus, it was very important for us today, by what we hope he is. We don't define Jesus by what we wish he was for us. We don't define Jesus by by our experiences or our emotional interaction or even by what I say or another pastor says about him. We define Jesus by what the word of God says that he is and says about him. That's how we define Jesus. Jesus was amazed by these people, but he was amazed at the wrong thing. He was amazed at their unbelief. 
So I want to look at what can we learn from these areas of unbelief in these people's lives and how can it speak to us today. So I want to talk to you about the effects of unbelief in Jesus. Unbelief in Jesus. In other words, if you have a wrong view of Jesus, how does this affect us? And number one, unbelief causes us to drift from God's best. God, Jesus wanted to go in that town and set that town on fire. He wanted to heal them, set them free. It says that, but he couldn't do anything because of their unbelief. People started asking the questions about Jesus. Where does this man get these things? Isn't he a carpenter? Listen, this is Mary's. This is Mary's baby. Listen, I, I knew this kid. He was running around, snotty nose, little kid running around here. That's Jesus. Wait a minute. In their mind, they had established what the Messiah might be, what he might look like, and so how they wanted to interact with him. And Jesus didn't tick the boxes of their preferences. So they said, no, sorry. And it, and, and it made them drift from what Jesus had for their town and their family and their life. And unbelief in our life can, can cause us to drift from God's best in our lives. And they asked these six questions. But here's what's interesting. They never gave Jesus a chance to answer them. We never see this account. They said, okay, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Jesus was at the synagogue. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, can you explain why do you have this power? Because I knew you as Mary's son. Answer me, please. They never said that. They just, they came up with suspicions and accusations without having any conversation with him. Anyone ever done that with you? suspicions and accusations towards you and you realize they come up with this whole thing about you and who you are and why you're doing things and then but they've never had a conversation with you happens all the time and they were doing this to Jesus and so they weren't they weren't looking actually for answers they were looking for accusations that supported their belief system that he wasn't the messiah and he wasn't the one that that had come to set them free it's, an, it's always a favorite tactic of Satan to question the things of God, to bring accusations towards God, towards God's people. The devil, I'm telling you this, he is a slimy, crooked idiot. Everybody say amen. And it's just good to say it out loud because he can hear and it's wonderful. And all the, all the time what happens is where God puts an exclamation point on a statement or a promise what happens is Satan comes in and it begins to kind of slither around. And when, once we, we used to say it as a statement, now we say it as a question. He puts a question mark where God put the exclamation point. For example, in the Garden of Eden, God had spoken clearly. He had told Adam and Eve that they could not eat, that they could eat of all the trees of the garden, but, 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 they, but, but they couldn't eat of one fruit, one tree, or they would die. Period, exclamation point. That's the truth. You can eat of everything, just not the one. Satan kind of slithers in and starts speaking to Eve for a little bit. Ask the questions, hey, did God really say that you couldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Did he say that? Well, actually, when you read it, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. So all of a sudden, he puts a question. I, wait, wait a minute, I don't, did he? I don't know. But Eve got to wondering about this, and Satan slipped in and said, hey, listen, just so you know, oh, you can't eat of the one? Just so you know, you, surely you won't die. That's not really what he meant. He didn't mean that you would die. Matter of fact, Eve, why God wants you to eat it is, uh, why he doesn't want you to eat it is because you become like him. She thought, oh, that'd be great. I can be like God. 
But what happened is that she took, she allowed a question from Satan to become the truth of what she was processing. And all of a sudden she came to the conclusion. And then the moment she ate of it, the moment she had unbelief towards what God said, was the moment that she lost God's best for her life. And unbelief in what God says causes us to drift from his best. There's nothing wrong with asking questions and like say, Lord, I don't really understand this. Nothing, or asking questions about the Bible or trying to reconcile some things. But you need to be aware that Satan is always ready to slip in a question mark where God has put an exclamation point or a period. And that's what he does. He uses these questions. Instead of searching for answers, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're trying to, to make our way, we're trying to make our case so that we can continue to do what we want to do. We want to make accusations instead of actually wanting to know the answers to the questions. And I believe that there are many blessings in our lives that are missing because we have believed a lie about Jesus. I think there are many things missing from our lives that, that we don't have, we don't possess, that we don't possess certain promises because we have unbelief about this Jesus that we serve. And the most effective way to combat unbelief is to make the Word of God a part of your everyday life. It's the only way to actually do that. And if you find yourself questioning the authority of Scripture, meaning you start explaining away what it says and making excuses for your choices, I would propose to you today that you have allowed unbelief to start germinating in your heart about who Jesus really is. The second thing that affects of, the, the, of unbelief in our life is, is number two. Unbelief hinders the flow of God's power in our life. Well, Jason, you can't say that. You can't say that my unbelief, so what you're saying is my belief oh, then releases God's power? I mean, come on, Jason. God's sovereign. Sounds good. But the Bible says that he could not do any miracles in his hometown. Why? Because of their unbelief. He was limited. Is it, well, isn't God all-powerful? Yes, he is. Can't God do whatever he wants? Yeah, he can. So what happened? Why couldn't he do miracles? It was because they didn't believe him, and God, here's what God does. He limits his power to your will and to your belief. I know that's a profound statement. I know you got to think about it for a bit, bit. But according to this passage, the context of this, he limits it. Now, is it always God's will? No. But the, what, what I'm saying is this, is that when we begin to believe God and uphold his promises and believe for his promises, something happens that re- it, it can release God's power in our lives. Because God won't violate our ability to choose him. God won't force his power on you. He won't force anyone to accept his free gift of salvation, nor really force anyone to intervene in our lives. He won't force himself to intervene in our lives. And so when we look at this passage, we, we realize these, these, these people, these citizens of Nazareth mistook that Jesus was just a carpenter. They believe, hey, Jesus, you can build a, you can build a table, but no, no way you, can you raise the dead. Uh-uh. They'd watched Jesus grow up. There was nothing special about him. And they didn't realize that the Messiah the God made flesh was among them, was walking with them. To, the, to them, Jesus was just common. Why? Because here's the kicker. I want you to hear this this morning. Why? Because he had become too familiar to them. 
They, they had heard about him. They had seen him. They had grown up with him. They, this is the kid that we had over for dinner. This is all of a sudden they, they, he, they were too familiar with Jesus and they couldn't see him for really what he was. And here's the truth. The same happens to us. We can lose the awe of Jesus Christ. We hear about him all the time. We come to church. We come on Wednesday. We, we listen to podcasts. We, we, we hear about him. We're, we're Christians. And what happens is we, we become so familiar with him that he, all of a sudden, we begin to view him and think about him in the natural ways of our own life. And we lose the value even of church or the bride of Christ that he's called us to be a part of because we're around it all the time. We see it all the time. It's lost its specialness. It's lost its shine. Why? Because we're just so familiar with it. We have lost the awe of what God is doing in our lives and can do. We can get distracted from the awe, even of, think about this, even of worshiping Jesus. Because he's always there. We think, you know, well, yeah, I'll worship him this Sunday. But, you know, I'm just, I'm tired, kind of what Pastor Nathan was talking about. Or, 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 you know, well, I, you know, Wednesday I'll really worship God. I'm just tired. I just want to hang out. I don't really want to engage with God. I don't really want want him to, to engage with me. And we can take him for granted if we're not careful. If we really believed, and this is a challenge to my life and to my heart today. If I really believed, if you really believed, Jesus is as majestic and powerful as we speak like he really is. If we really stopped for a minute and we could see how glorious he is and grasp, though we deserve eternal death and damnation, that by his love he has saved us, he has rescued us, he has chosen us. We would stop getting distracted by the natural things that we have to tick off the box that, okay, now I've ticked off all the, all the natural things, and yes, this fits my preferences, and now I'll worship you. We would no longer worry about that. We would just say, this is the God of the universe. He wants to meet with me. I will worship Jesus because he is worthy of worshiping. And that will be the only reason why you will do it. I've had the opportunity of worshiping Jesus in many, many different atmospheres, many different styles of worship. I've stood in Anglican church in, uh, in England and sang hymns that were in King James, and I couldn't hardly get them out in time. And, and, but, I, but I've worshiped Jesus because he's worthy to be worshiped, and I felt his presence. I stood in a little, in a, in a little uh, church on, on an edge of a little town in Cuba with a, with a lean-to as their roof, and I've worshiped and encountered Jesus with songs I couldn't even pronounce and say the words. I've stood in a village in Thailand and worshiped God with, with, with songs and, and characters of of letters that are so bizarre. I had no clue what they said, but I knew of the Jesus that they were worshiping and I could engage in his presence and I could find him and I could meet him and I could just say, God, I worship you because you are worthy to be worshiped. What happens when we get too familiar with Jesus, we start running down our list, you know, actually, is it this way? Is this the songs, type of songs I like? Is this the type of lighting I prefer? Is this the type of atmosphere? You know, I really wish the worship leader had a different haircut. And, you know, I can't believe that the guitar player wore a hat when he played. And, you know, all, this, all of a sudden we run our preferences. And oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, Jesus, I can't worship you today because my preferences weren't met. What's happened? We have become too familiar. 
we forget how wonderful he is. When we forget how wonderful he is, we start telling him and the others around us how important we are. How I can't engage with God because you haven't ran this by me yet. This is difficult for me to share because I know it's true. I know it's true in my life. I know it's true in some of your lives. We come to the Savior of the world who deserves all worship and all praise. And we say, I'll worship you when we can do it my way. We've become too familiar. And it limits God's power from moving among us. The attitude it's all about me, limits God's power from moving in your life. The fact is Jesus is worthy of all worship. He deserves all praise. He deserves all worship. Anytime his children get together to glorify his name, regardless of the style, regardless of the lighting, regardless of the environment, a person with a pure belief and view and faith in Jesus Christ can worship Jesus any moment, any time with fellow believers. Kind of like Paul and Silas, they were tossed in a jail. They were, they were bound. The lighting wasn't right. They, they didn't have this, the words upon the screen. But they sat there, they thought, boy, let's cut. how about that? let's have a worship service because Jesus is worthy to be praised. And they began to lift their voice. They began to glorify him. They began to, to, to worship the God in a way that he was worthy of being worshipped. And Scripture says that the power of God filled that jail cell and they un unleashed the power of Jesus in their midst and their chains fell off and they walked out of that prison. Why? Because they chose to elevate Jesus over their preferences or their circumstances. That's what happened. Jesus is majestic and he's powerful. And we should worship him. It's easy to fall into a rut, it's easy to fall into what we call religion. You go through the motions. You get, you, you get too familiar with the beauty of him. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. That they were so concerned about the natural things they, they didn't like. They didn't like that he was Mary's son. They didn't like that he had grown up in their town. They didn't like that, that mm, he, you know, he, he has brothers and sisters. They didn't like the natural things, and therefore, God wasn't able to move in their life. I just, I'd love for us as a church to just worship Jesus in purity. Instead of using our voices to express maybe things in our own family that are frustrating and things in our own lives that are frustrating, we begin to use our own voice to express how much we love Jesus and how thankful we are that he's saved. But there's this other interaction with Jesus. That's the other side of this coin called faith. We find it in Luke chapter 7. 
It's incredible. It's a story of a centurion, the soldier. And let me read to you the passage, and I'll just give you a couple practical things. When Jesus had finished saying all of this, he had been teaching to the people who were listening. He entered Capernaum. There a centurion, a soldier, a Roman soldier, servant, whose master, who, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. They said, listen, this man deserves to have you heal his servant because he loves our nation and has built our synagogues. So this is a very generous Roman soldier, he, he was really serving the people that, that he was over. So Jesus went to them and was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man, am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this, go, and, 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 and they go, and that one come, and, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Everybody say amazed. He was amazed at him. Turning to the ground, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This faith of this centurion amazed Jesus. So what can we learn from this precious soldier today about how to have pure faith in Jesus? Number one, pure faith in Jesus sees the needs of other people. It's just not focused on yourself. Just not focus. Your prayers aren't just all about you. They're about praying for other people in our church. They're about praying for your family members. They're about praying for our, for our nation and praying for the lost and the broken of our community. This your centurion, he didn't selflessly ask Jesus to help him. He said, I have a servant who is in need of you, Jesus. He wasn't thinking about his own needs. When you are consumed about the things that only you want, what happens is this, is you will live an unfulfilled life focusing on just your needs. I promise you this will only lead to trouble. Everybody should say amen. Reminds me of this, uh, of this guy, his name was John. He was 70 years old and his wife actually had a, uh, a birthday party. She was 70 as well. And so his name was John, her name was Betty. And uh, they were at a friend's house celebrating Betty's 70th birthday, and John wandered back into the home's library, and he found a collection of artifacts from all over, the, all over the world in this back room. So John picked up one of the artifacts, and he rubbed it, and poof, this female genie came out, and she appeared, and she said, because you freed me, I want to grant you one wish. Now, something to know about John, he's a pretty selfish individual. He only focuses on himself. So he started thinking about his wife. He says, you know, I am at my wife's 70th birthday, you know. And he was thinking, you know, I, I, it would be nice to have a younger, maybe sweeter wife. So John said to the genie, listen, genie, I know what I want. I wish I had a wife 30 years younger than me. The female genie said, are you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. So she blinked her eyes and poof, suddenly John was 100 years old. <laughs> It's trouble if you just think about yourself all the time. <laughs> the point here is you got to be careful that you don't be consumed <laughs> with praying just about things for you. 
God wants us. Pure faith prays for others. Number two, pure faith in Jesus is seasoned with humility. I love the heart of this centurion soldier. He was humble. Actually, when, when he heard Jesus was coming, we read this in Luke chapter 7. He says this, don't trouble yourself, Jesus. I, I don't deserve to have you come on my own roof. This, this was a man who saw Jesus for who he was. He was in awe of him. He was in love with him. He saw how majestic and how powerful he had respect and honor for him. He said, that's why I didn't come to consider, because I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. He was a humble man. Sometimes we can approach God with such self-importance and self-entitlement that we, we lose the, the reality that, that we come to him out of humility. Scripture is very clear that God resists the proud but elevates and lifts up the humble. And we, we can lose the affection and the appreciation of his glory and majesty. And we can come to him demanding instead of asking. Pure faith comes humbly before God and says, Lord, I so love you and I appreciate you. That's why scripture says you enter his gates with thanksgiving. You be God, thank you for being so good to me. Thank you for, for meeting me and thank you for walking with me through this dark season of my life and thank you for loving me. And he honors the Lord, which says he's a humble man. And I believe that God, when you look throughout Scripture, God is moved by the prayers of the humble, of the broken, of the hurting. He is moved by those who humble themselves and come to him. He is moved by those who are, who, who are thrilled and humbled by the work of the cross. That they live in awe of the love that has been shown to them. Prayers from the humble are heard and felt by God. This is a prayer. At the end of each one of these points, when I was preparing this this week, I, I wrote a prayer for myself. The first one, I said this, God, help me to see the needs of others. Give me your heart for those around me and allow me to look past me to serve those that I see. This prayer for this point is, Father, forgive me for spiritual arrogance and help me to humbly come to you and all of you and help me to be more enamored by who you are. That's my prayer. It's my prayer for all of us today. The third point of pure faith is this. Pure faith in Jesus is anchored to the word of God. This man, he didn't need Jesus to come. He said, just say the word. Speak the word. This, we, this is the purity of his faith in the word of Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 8, 13. He said, listen, I love this. Listen, you just said speak the word that you believe so much in me. You, you honor me. You see me for really who I am. He says, go. It will be done just as you believed it would. Boom. Done. It happened. Pure faith that amazes God is a faith that bases our whole life on the words of God. And we have before us a gift that God's given each one of us. It's called the Word of God. That we are, if we are to read it, if we are to allow it to be in our lives, what, what can happen? It can purify our faith. Because I promise you this in this room, none of us have arrived at perfect, pure faith. I promise you. But we're all on a journey. We're all growing. And when I looked at this this week, I, I, I challenged my own self, Lord, Am I reading your word throughout the week to prepare a message? Or am I reading it so that I can cleanse my mind? 
so that I can purify my faith, so that I can get to know you more. And I, I, I realize, I realize my own vulnerabilities, I realize my own, uh, my own limitations, and I have many of them. But I know one day someone else will pastor this church, and all that will matter to me is that I'm a son of God. And so for me, it's so important that, that, that I anchor my life in the word of God. Pure faith that amazes God is based on the word of God. Think about this. We have, we have the gift of the word of God. Think about this. None of our beliefs, there's no other place we get our beliefs as Christians except from the Bible. And the reality is, Christian culture, most people don't read it. And it's the, it's the one place that we get our beliefs. It's the one place that can strengthen us. It's the one place that can purify our minds. It's the one place that can correct us. It's the one place that can bring encouragement to us. The scripture says this, that the, the word of God that we hold in our hands, it is God breathed. It's where you find truth. It's, where God, it's what God says about himself. It gives us our view of the world, our view of Jesus, our view of sin. God's plan for our families. God's plan for our church, our understanding of ourselves. God's plan for our children. It's kind of a big deal. Pure faith is anchored to the word of God. And once you realize that these words on this page that we have, they are God-breathed. They are his breath. Our approach changes. We come to it not as a labor or something I have to do. We come to it as, as I get to read it. We are in awe and we are in wonder of the revelation that's going to come. It lights our pathway. It's what sustains us. It's our source of life. The book that you have called the Holy Scriptures, it's not just a manual, it's not just a relationship help book, it's not just doctrine. This is the book that gives me life. It's the book that inspires me. It's the book that guides me. It's the book that directs me. It's the book that brings life and ends death. And it's the greatest true story that's ever been told of a rescuer, of redemption, of restoration, because the words of this book speak of Jesus and speak to us of what God has already said and promised us. And so our faith is to be anchored to the word of God. And we must allow it to view, to shape our view of Jesus. So for all of us today, I want to share three things that my prayer is for you in closing today. One May we stand in awe of his word and of Jesus. Number two, may we kneel in submission to Jesus and his word. Number three, may we walk in the illumination of Jesus and his word. I have some questions for you today. Have you become so familiar with God that you've lost the awe of him. You've lost the majesty that the creator of the universe wants to know you. Do you withhold your worship of him because your preferences aren't ticked, checked off? Or do you come into his presence because he's worthy? 
regardless. Have you allowed your natural experiences to shape your view of the divine? Do you desire pure faith in Jesus? Here's the beautiful thing. If you do, the Bible says that those who diligently seek him will find him. He is longing to meet you. All you have to do is humble yourself and say, Lord, I want to live in fresh inspiration of who you are. I want you to be so alive in me. God, I want to return to the days of my first love where I was so excited about you, Jesus. I didn't see all the other stuff that distract me, but I just couldn't wait to get into your presence. I couldn't wait to worship you because I loved you because I was aware of how, how honored I am that you would save me. And I just want to worship you. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you'd like to watch a service live online, you can join us every Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at live.faith.church. For everything else, check our website at www.faith.church.